Hey, I'm Robbie Kramer. You're listening to the Leverage Podcast, where we discuss using your social skills to hack dating, travel, finding your dream job, and becoming a complete man. All right, guys. Well, welcome to the call. We've got a special guest on the Leverage Podcast today. He's a longtime moderator in the group, a longtime friend of mine, Mr. Sasha. And uh, Sasha, welcome to the call. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, I've been on a call with you in a while. <laughs> right? <laughs> just accounting meetings. <laughs> exactly. Um, just to give you guys a little background, I know most of you guys in the call know Sasha, but some of you who are not members of the group and listening to the podcast do not. Um, Sasha is what I would kind of call a natural, except he really understands what he's doing. He's got a poker background, which is kind of how we met. Uh, which means he really understands game theory, he understands EV, expected value, and, you know, it looks like he's just, has no clue at first what he's doing, he's like this, you know, good looking, but at first sight, you don't really know if he's good looking, if you're a guy, if you're a girl, you think he's fucking hot, but it was funny, because when I first met Sasha, he had like this long, crazy hair, and he was like this alien, we all called him the alien, and we were out, I think the first time, <laughs> the first time I did, I realized like, holy shit, Sasha has game was when we were in, um, we were in London and, um, you took down that smoking hot girl that was working at the poker game and, yeah, and, um, that was a fun night. Oh yeah. <laughs> we were throwing we're poker throwing chips. The, throwing the poker chips. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Um, and then it, he, probably of every guy I know, I don't know, man, I think you might have, I would put you up against anyone. Um, it's just a combination of never making a mistake, and uh, you have all the fundamental nonverbal stuff really down, and then your verbal stuff's super down too. Uh, so I would challenge anyone who ever listens to this podcast, if you know a dude that you could just put in an environment and kind of go, not like, not like you could easily do this, but have some like a fucking pickup competition. I got my money on Sasha. <laughs> <laughs> you bring your best horse, whatever you want to bet. I got my money on Sasha. Um, and the, I make, I make the cut for the all-star team is what you're saying. Definitely. Definitely. Um, so I want to get into that and then we'll kind of transition off of the, you know, women and pickup and all that stuff later on to business stuff. Um, yeah. But you have an interesting story, interesting upbringing, you know, raised by two moms, and which is kind of, which I find interesting because most guys who are raised by single mothers or just without like a, a prominent masculine role model tend to really struggle. And maybe yeah. you struggled at a younger age. I'm not sure. So kind of take us through your childhood a little bit and Give us a background. Yeah, so super weird childhood as far as you know, parents and upbringing. Raised by two super two super hippie, meat is murder lesbians. So <laughs> me was not allowed in the house. No TV. We had you know solstice rituals and all that good stuff. Um, and I had a few other siblings. We were all adopted. Um, so that was definitely very unique. Um, we did grow up in Santa Cruz, California. Um, for those that know it, it's much more of a hippie, weird town versus your kind of standard, um, towns out there, but you know, West coast Bay area, definitely at, at a younger age. Um, I had a little bit of a trouble just adapting and fitting in with kind of the, the normal crowd, um, just because of my upbringing and just kind of being a little sheltered from to your typical social life. You know, I wasn't allowed to watch TV, so I didn't get any of those cultural references at school. I had, you know, I had to eat weird food, you know, just, just everything about my life, my clothes. No, I wasn't allowed to have any logos on my clothes. You know, that wow. the nature of my upbringing ostracized me from my peers pretty, pretty, you know, pretty severely. Mm -hmm. um, Wait, what age were you adopted? I was like, well, I was adopted when I was five. Okay. I was five, so I was pretty young. And I was homeschooled in, in middle school. And middle school is like, you know, in the States, that's your transition from a kid to a teenager, right? Like elementary school, you can be the dude, dorkiest guy. But if you're nice, you're good at handball or whatever, who fuck cares, right? You're not, you know, mm -hmm. whatever. But then in high school, like everything really matters. And middle school is kind of where you transition. And I homeschooled. So I was still that like dorky, like, like 
hey, guys, let's go in the woods and, like, go exploring, you know, at, <laughs> at, at, when going into high school, which, you know, is all in, in sweet and cool, but doesn't really get you a lot of the popular kids in high school. Right. Um, but I, I ended up playing sports in high school, which really helped a lot. Uh, I played water polo, which is a really physical sport. I was in good shape, you know, partied with the team a little bit. But I definitely still was a little bit of an outsider in the sense that I was still different. You know, I, you know, I had different values than most people. And, you know, I think long term, it was a really, really good thing. But definitely growing up, I was a little more sheltered and probably had a smaller friends, friends group than I would have if I had a, diff- a different family, you know. Right. Um, where I got really lucky was, was graduating early from high school and then ended up moving to London when I was 19. And um, that kind of just being thrown into the fire there and, and traveling the world from 19 and basically since then, um, you know, that's been the crucible that's really kind of shaped who I am and, and allowed me to be comfortable in any situation, allow me to, you know, regardless of where I am in the world. And, Wait, you, know, so you started stuff. you started traveling, what, 19 after high school, like freshman yeah. year of college? Yeah, so, yeah. well, yeah, so I went, to, I went to UNC Chapel Hill, followed a girl there. You know, my first girl, so I'm in love. You know, first first girl I told I love, you know, second girl I ever slept with and, you know, all that stuff. And mm-hmm. um, So high school, it was, all, by the way. <laughs> high school was kind of not a whole lot going on in the love department, just. In the, in the girl, you know, so I had, I had, I had two girls in, in high school. So yeah, it was it wasn't, I wasn't banging girls left and right in high school, that's for sure. Um, I had, um, I'm super, super nerdy. I met this girl at, at band camp. Um, and, uh, you know, she, I was, she was my first love and I, she's the one I followed in North Carolina. Um, and then a year in, I got hit by a car when I was on my bike. And so I got pretty seriously injured there. I'm fine now that that, that kind of ended my water polo career, my college career. And then, um, I broke up with my girl. So it's kind of like I was in this super rut, bad place and long story short, ended up, you know, someone's like, Hey, you should try out poker. And I was like, Oh, I won a dollar. I'm the best poker player in the world I've ever played before. And I got <laughs> super, super, super lucky and ended up winning uh, all basically all expenses paid trip to play in like a $5,000 buy-in poker tournament in uh, France in this little little town called Duville. There's like Duville and Trouville, these little sister towns up on the northern tip of France on the coastline. And there's Wait, a this big is, casino up there for some reason. This is after you moved to 19. London? No, no, this, this is what, this is what prompted the move to London. Oh, so I see. North okay. Carolina. I'm yeah. playing online poker for like two pennies a hand, whatever, not, you know, just passing the time because I'm depressed. Right. I get insanely more lucky than I should have ever gotten and got this all expenses paid trip to Europe. And I never really traveled before. I never really traveled outside the States. And that kind of opened my eyes up to this, this, there's this whole world out there. And I got really lucky again. And you know, I didn't win any money at the tournament, but I met a couple poker player professionals that, you know, lived in London and we kind of, you know, kind of told them my soft story and they were like, you know, it's, screw her, screw school, just take a sabbatical and come live with us in London and we'll teach you how to play poker. And I went back home to this, you know, I went back to the States and, you know, they were messaging me on whatever, whatever the message aim or whatever it was back then. And um, they eventually convinced me to, to make a go of it. And I, I, took, I took a year off school and, you know, just kind of bought a one-way ticket to London and just kind of took a leap of faith and never went back. And I lived, I lived in Europe off and on for the next, you know, three or four years. Mm-hmm. And that, and you think that had a big impact on your social life going from, I mean, you just broke it up with your girl, you moved to London. Yeah. So I mean, so at first I was still a little timid, you know I mean? I'm, I'm now 19. I mean, my peer group was now, you know, in ranging from twenties to eighties, you know, it's all the degenerate gamblers and crazy people that are in that lifestyle, which is kind of almost the polar opposite of the lifestyle that I, that I grew up in, you know, like yeah. it's, you know, I my peer group were going on like sex tours of Eastern Europe, and I grew up in super feminist, le- vegetarian, lesbian world. So <laughs> Santa Cruz, <laughs> like you couldn't take a farther world than I grew up in than what I ended up in at, at nineteen. And I was a sheltered nineteen too, so it wasn't like I was like world traveling, jetting around at fifteen with a family. Like it was sheltered, never been out of state nineteen. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So. I mean, and, and with, what's, what's good about, you know, what's good about poker is, you know, to be a really good poker player, and I was, I was pretty damn good for a while, is you have to have really good pattern recognition. And I think that is what really has really helped me socially is, you know, I see something and I just kind of instinctively pick up on it and I just, I just know what is, what is this, 
what does this mean? Like, what, what is, what, you know, A leads to B leads to C. And I've just seen it so many times. I just kind of instinctively, I'm just really good at reading those, those signals because, because of all those years of having to do that for poker. Right. So that really helps too. And that is, in my opinion, the, the, the reason what makes someone great from, <laughs> well, from basically, yeah. Um, and most guys I feel like who struggle, they fail to notice those, those patterns or they're not even looking for them. So that's huge. Yeah. I mean, some, some, I mean, it, it, it's interesting. Some of them, like you kind of have to be hit over head with them, right? It might be someone, you know, it's just like, you know, someone shows you or do something they're like, Oh, I'm going to do what is something is something they're easy, but not intuitive, I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah. Um, but, and, but some of it's just really just got to put in the rest and just, just kind of mm-hmm. over and over again. Yeah. I, I agree. And I, you know, so I think, I think I definitely had a leg up on the number of reps I do because how much pattern recognition, pattern recognition was important to playing poker. I just clearly had a knack for it. Um, I was always one of those kind of play by field poker players, not like the super like math calculator Rayman type guys, you know? So, right. so then, so living in London and because I wasn't on a work or student visa, I kind of had to bounce around. So I was, I had this really sweet situation with my best friend and his wife. Um, they're a little bit older than me, but they live, they kind of like to travel around that area. So, you know, they would get a two bedroom flat and I would just, I would just have a room there when I needed one. So, you know, they were in Milton Village and then we were in Cardiff, Wales, and then we were in Soho in London and just kind of in that area. So I would spend a few months, that would be my home base, and I would spend a few months traveling either in Europe or come back to the States for a bit. And that was my life, you know, for, for, for a little while. And you're mostly playing online poker and some cash games so was, there? You know, it was a mixture. So, so the European poker tour was just starting to get big back then. I mean, I'm 30 now, so this was, you know, nine, nine, ten years ago um, when I started. Um, and the European poker tour was just kind of taking off, and they were opening up new destinations, which was really exciting. So, you know, I was, the, I was you know, I played the first stop in, in Russia. I played the first stop in Italy. I played the first stop in Ireland, you know, like the, the first time that those locations were open, you know, so, so it was, it was more about, I, I was, I became buddies with um, the poker company that was, that was kind of running that. And it was by far the biggest um, poker tournament in the uh, series in the world besides the, the world poker tour was, was big then. Um, the, the European poker tour, the EPT and the world poker tour, the WPT, those were like the two big, like um, touring tournament series and of course there's the WSOP or the World Series of Poker in Vegas every year. Right. So back up 11 years ago, that's, you know, 2006 is when all this is happening. Yeah. yeah. Um, and how did you afford the buy-ins for those? Did you build up a bankroll just from playing or were you getting staked? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know how much, how interesting this is to the common person, but, um, Poker is poker is a very weird economy, and once you're in it, once you're recognized as a poker player, you almost have unlimited capital to play poker, right? If, if you're recognized as a even a moderately profitable poker player, just oh, he's a decent poker player, whether whether your numbers really bear that or not. Because back then, people weren't using stat tracking; like there wasn't these like databases where you could look someone up and know their exact lifetime winnings versus their buy-ins and their ROI and all that stuff. It, you know, if you're a poker player and people like you, like, oh, let me take you for this, or I want to put you in that, you know. So at the beginning, I was lucky enough to kind of be have my hand held by a couple of like bigger names in in poker back in the day in London, and so they they put me in some games and I built a small bankroll and just kind of it was a mixture of both kind of throughout. Okay. So what was it like, kind of traveling around and playing poker? What how did that affect uh, your dating life? So. So yeah, so, so dating life, I mean, dating life was, was great and bad at the same time. So for me, just, and this is, you know, just the, my makeup and who I am and, and from where I was raised, like, um, I've never, ever been interested in, like, paying for sex. Strip clubs don't really interest me that much. Um, I get off when my partner gets off, and it's, I, I just don't believe they are if I'm paying them for it or if there's that kind of understanding, right? That's why, like, essay for me, like, was never really for me or any of that kind of stuff. Right. Um, and unfortunately, or just the way that the culture is, like, there's so there's it's very cliche, but a lot of the, the, the professional poker players or gamblers, you know, it was booze, women and gambling right, yeah. and drugs. Right. So it was it was very much like, oh, you're done playing poker at 4 a.m. Well, what's open? The strip club, you know. So it's it, and, and that for me, that, that wasn't the life that I wanted. So, and it was, it was, a, it was a hard balance, being the new kid on the block and trying to fit in and like, you know, be sociable and, and hang out. 
and, and make connections, but also like, I don't, I had no desire to be in a strip club every day. And some of those guys were like pretty great. <laughs> and those, <laughs> those poker games. Yeah. I mean, those games last till, you know, four five, six, seven in the morning until, oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. until the and fish leaves, well, oh. you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. they, might, they might go, <laughs> yeah, they, they might go, you know, 48 <laughs> hours. They might go through the whole next day. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah. I mean, and, and that, and and so and because I was so um, what's the word I'm looking for? I was such a nomad, right? I was just bouncing around all the time. It was hard, you know. I, I, I didn't have roots. I didn't have an apartment somewhere. And back then, I you know, what I I wish I knew now then what I know now about how to travel, you know, because back then it seemed so hard to meet people. I mean, I, I mean back then there wasn't Tinder or anything like that either. You know, it was much. The, your world was a lot smaller back then. Um. So, it, it, I mean, it, you know, if I was, you know, that age, but in 2017, I think it would be a lot easier. Um, so, you know, but I, you know, I would, I would, you know, I dated here and there, you know, hook up with girls here and there, but I don't think, I, I don't think I really came into my, like my prime as far as like with women until probably like mid twenties. Like I, I wasn't like, I was like a sex scene to 20, like just like running to girls. Like that definitely wasn't the case. Um, just, I mean, also poker is like, you know, poker is all consuming. Like, yeah, you said like two day session, like, yeah. like my, if I'm 30 hours in, I'm not going to, I'm like showing up for that drink for that girl. Like, fuck off. Like, I got, I got, I got poker to play. Yeah. And it's not like there's yeah. a lot of girls playing poker either. There's the massage girls. Oh, there's, there's, who are, no, there's, you yeah, know. there's massage girls, working girls. <laughs> yeah. I have no interest in. And there's like one or two girls that play poker. And then they just, it, it's like, it's like San Francisco where there's so much more demand and supply. They get put on this pedestal and you have like, uh, whatever girl that just thinks she's the queen of the world because every dorky poker player is trying to hook up to her. Yep. And and I stayed away from that as well. So, you know, what's funny is, you know, so I kind of had my poker cir- social circle and I had my like normal social circle back then. And I would, I'm, it was kind of a balancing act of like, you know, making sure my poker circle still stays strong enough where I was still, you know, influential in that group. But, you know, I definitely preferred probably to hang out at least some of the time outside of that to kind of keep my perspective. Right. So what um, what helped you make that transition where you started seeing a big improvement in your mid twenties? Did anything happen in terms of your career? And when did like well answer that one first, and then you can kind of go into like how did you end up back in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, back in the U.S., I was you know I was well, I was twenty one. I bought a, you know I moved to Vegas because I thought you know if you're a poker player twenty one, you're supposed to go to Vegas. That was horrible. I don't recommend living in Vegas to anyone. I mean, unless you got really, really sick in the head, because that will eat you up. Something will eat you up and spit you out for sure. Um, but, you know, that's, that's a good question as far as, like, how I transitioned from, like, mid-20s kind of hitting my, my crying with girls. Um, um, you know what's funny is, and I, I haven't really thought about this, so I'm just kind of speaking, you just kind of, thinking out loud is, you know, I think a big part of it is I dated an older woman when I was 21 in Vegas and she was to me much older. She was late 20 and I was 21 and she's the one that kind of got me into like EDSM type stuff. Mm, okay. And she's the one that kind of, um, you know, we started, we got into a couple sex parties and, you know, brought a couple girls in the mix and it's just kind of like, kind of open my world up to like the possibilities that are out there, you know, cause if, if no one shows you that world, sometimes it's hard to, you know, stumble across it on your own. And, and of I kind of have been turned off by it because of like all this strip club debauchery was not for me. And so I kind of lumped that whole world together into one big pile. I was like, mm, I'm good. Um, <laughs> and that, and that, I, and the thinking about it, that definitely is what changed it for me. I think and of course, and I was with her for a year or two and, you know, then I was back home for a bit and just, you know, so I think, you know, 23, 24 is when I started, you know, started being more adventurous, like, you know, starting to to put more focus in that area as well, I would say. Yeah, and that that's interesting to hear you say that because I had a similar experience too. It happened for me later, um, you know, when I got I found a girlfriend and at that point in my life, I think I was like 29, um, I just moved back to L.A., this wasn't that long ago, whatever, six years ago. Um, and I started dating a girl that I'm sure everyone remembers on this call. And we started going to sex parties all the time and pulling girls for threesomes. And it really changes your perspective 
from sex is hard to get to sex is everywhere. And it's just so easy and it's just so abundant. Um, and it, you, you kind of like strips away all those societal norms about women don't want sex and you have to put in work or you have to, you know, pay for sex. You just see girls who are just like, Oh yeah, let's fuck. Yeah. Bring her, bring her, bring her. Let's bring everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I think your, you, your experience is definitely much more than mine was at 21, right? Mine was right. like, I dipped my toe in the water. You kind of dove head first off the diving board. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but, uh, so, but definitely the spirit of what you're saying, I agree with, you know, for sure. I think I still had some, some, some hangups, but I probably still do, um, with, with societal norms and like kind of what, what that is, you know, what that means. Right. Um, it's hard to kind of shake all of that for sure. And what was that like being with, uh, the older woman and how old was she? You were 21. She was what? Uh, she was late, she was late 20, 28, 29. Okay. Um, it was, it was, it was fun. I mean, she was, she was really messed up, like. In hindsight, I should have ran away screaming day one, but I was like, you know, alone in Vegas and like she was smoking hot and like, I, you know, I thought she was the, thought she was the best. And like the, the turning point, long story short, was like her shrink telling me to run away or or because she was never going to get better. And like if I stayed with her, I was going to like turn into as much of a mental case as her. Like her, her therapist literally reached out to me and told me, to run away from his patient. What? That's how bad it is. Isn't that against a uh, <laughs> patient client? Yeah, absolutely has to be against some sort of rule, but he was like trying to save my life. And I actually like appreciate it because like, that was a wake up call, you know? Yeah. <laughs> she was, very was, toxic. Wrong with she was great. She was great in some respects, but toxic. Um, she, you know, like, poor thing. She just had, um, you know, she had, she was manic depressive, bipolar, like, you know, obsessive. Like just, it just, just a uh, whole range of things. And I was a kid and she's showing all these things and I, you know, I was from Vegas and like, we did all, you know what I mean? Like you just kind of, Ooh, shiny things. And you, you know, like, yeah, show me a 28 year old. that we've, we've all, we've all dated that. We've <laughs> all dated a girl like that. Right. I mean, you take a girl in her late twenties, single living in Vegas. I'm sure she has a host. Well, there, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> that's, 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 that's <laughs> well now it's like, duh, like fucking idiot. Like obviously but <laughs> when you're 21, no, you have no idea when you're 21. Yeah. But yeah, it's yeah. such a Vegas has got to be probably the most fucked up dating culture of any city in the U.S. for sure. Um, <laughs> it's just Vegas is Vegas, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, Vegas is is, uh, is like boiled down with the essence of Vegas. Like, what have you done for me lately? Mm-hmm. So if you have that mixed with all that flash and glamour and glitz, and then you have, I mean, it's it's, it's what have you done for me? Lately? Vegas, L.A. is kind of like that, but Vegas is that on steroids. Like with like the, the, the higher turnover. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's insane! Yeah. And so, how long did you live in Vegas? I lived in Vegas for roughly a year, um, which is about ten months too long. Um, and you know, I, you know, it, it sounds weird, but you know, like uh, people kind of, oh, you're going to go to a good college, and you get you have a degree, and then you get a good job. Right. I was following that the poker version of that path. Mm-hmm. You're 21. All right, you're done with Europe. You should go to the States and you should go to Vegas. That's where all the, the top pros are. And you need to buy a house in Vegas and, and travel between L.A. and Vegas playing all the high-stakes cash games and to be friends with Phil Ivy. You know what I mean? Like that, that was like, that, that, was, that was where I thought I had, what I, I thought that was like what I was supposed to do. Yeah. And I tried it for a year and I was miserable. Like it just was, like, like I was looking at all this nice furniture and this nice house in Vegas and like, you know, on paper, this beautiful girl, even though she's you know, crazy. And, um, you know, on paper, a lot of it looked great. Um, but I was miserable. And um, at the end of the year, roughly, um, I packed everything in the moving truck. And I, I just basically left my girl and moved and drove to Santa Cruz, which is where I grew up, threw everything into a storage unit and went back to Europe. I was like, I'm, I'm out. I can't. This is not for me. What was it, what was it specifically that, that made your life, you know, so shitty at that time? What, what made you hate it? So it, it kind of, it kind of crept up on me. You know, at first I was loving it. You know, you're in Vegas, amazing food, amazing shows. Like I probably saw every Cirque du Soleil show that was in Vegas multiple times. I'm a big foodie. And so like, you know, like the food scene there is amazing. Um, the party scene there, of course, is just absolute insanity. Um, but you know, when, 
with poker, you have, kind of have to have a nocturnal schedule anyway. So I was training it as a vampire. Like, I almost, it was almost like a promoter lifestyle where right. you, know, you wake up mid-afternoon, you know, you, you, you yeah, get totally out of shape and gross because you're just, you know, you're just drinking every single night. Like, you know, I was, I was you know, I used to post up at the Wynn Poker Room, which is right, it used to be like right where you'd, when you'd walk out of the big club in the wind, you'd walk at the poker room and I was perfect. You'd always drunk guys coming in, but then you got to drink with them. I remember like getting a hammer with Drake on tequila, like, like trying to like take his money. And it's, it's, it's you, com- you combine like Vegas, which in a vacuum just by itself can be pretty soul sucking. Right. I yeah. think everyone's felt that way at some point in Vegas. And then you combine that with poker, which is a zero sum game. If I win, you have to lose. We can't both win at poker. Right. Not, it's a zero-sum game. I'm not building anything. I'm not making anything. I'm not contributing to society in, a, in, a, in any way. I'm just taking your money. Yep. So yep. you're waking up every day in <laughs> Vegas to take someone's money. You can imagine why over time, like especially like I was, you know, a sensitive kid from raised by hippie lesbians who believe in saving the earth from the evil capitalists. Like, you, could, you know, no, no surprise. Sasha wasn't happy in Vegas. <laughs> like, what'd your mom's had to have to say about your lifestyle? <laughs> I mean, they thought they thought they 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 were appalled and shocked and terrified that they had like locked me to the demons. Like, yeah, like I was like the golden child. You know, I was the first adopted. I was you know first to go to college. You know, all this stuff and like, and then for like you know I was I was a very bright kid. I was very good at academics and sports. Like I you know I, that standard career path was very much open to me. Yep. And for me to throw it all away in there, I had to go play poker and go to live and move to Vegas was like. Well, if you think about our, our generation, you know, the, the, the amazing minds lost to poker in the early 2000s, you know, guys our age that were just, you yeah. know, starting college, finishing college, you know, I'm a few years older than you. Um, basically, all of my friends who were all the smartest kids, athletes, we all just basically stopped doing anything in life and just started printing money on party poker. And if you think about the impact, if you think about the impact on society, you know, you're pulling all of these people out of the labor force who would be huge contributors. And now they're just basically, you know, degenerate gamblers. So, (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I don't don't know how many people are acting. I mean, think about the amount of people that are graduating college getting normal jobs versus the it can't be that many people on party poker, right? No, no, no. It's a small <laughs> thing. Like brain drain but maybe, poker yeah, great, <laughs> brain. Hey, maybe we would have solved all of the world's problems by now. If party yeah, poker is yeah, the yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, so you're, now you're in Santa Cruz, and now what? Sorry, so I put all my shit in storage, and, um, you know, I, and I have a, an amazing relationship with my baby sister because she actually um, was born, she was adopted at birth and I homeschooled in middle school and she was adopted right then. So like the first two years of life I was around every day and, you know, we talk most days or FaceTime or, you know, I'm, I'm very much fly, but wherever I'm in the world, I fly back for her birthday, et cetera. So I spent like probably three or six months with her just reconnecting. Uh, and then I went back to Europe and um, just kind of, was kind of just taking a sabbatical from poker, just kind of just checked out for a bit. And I did, I did that classic, like European backpack thing. Right. Like I did the, the, the you know, cause when I was young, a little bit younger, I, I, you know, was doing like the glamorous poker life with travel, which is, which is a very weird, unique brand of travel that has, you know, massive swings, right? Like you would, you know, in 20 grand in the night, you know, you're just going to have, you know, you're just going to go below like five grand on dinner and out. And then like the next night you lose 20, you're like, I'm still having Donald to cry myself to sleep, you know, yeah. so, like <laughs> a lot of things in that life. Yeah. Um, but, but so I did, you know, so I just did the back, I, you know, somebody said when I just did the backpacker life. So I, I backpacked across Europe solo. Um, I think that's where I kind of fell in love with solo travel as well. Um, I think that was, that was, and you know, I've been, kind of a nomad ever since. Like I haven't, I don't think I've been in a place longer than six months since then. I think about it. And what was it about solo travel? Cause, uh, that's so I've done a little bit of solo travel. I spent a few months in Ukraine and it's at first it's, it's kind of scary. You're like, fuck I'm all alone. Like, but it, it also well, forces it, you to yeah. meet people, which is amazing. It does. So, so there's, I mean, there's pros and cons. Um, I think, doing your first solo travel um, in 
a country like Ukraine is a little more difficult because I was right. doing it in London and Western Europe where, I mean, everyone speaks English. Everything is basically the same. Everything's a little bit different, but I, I don't need to worry about am I, am, is what I'm doing that, you know, like that custom-wise or anything like that. You know, mm-hmm. like I, all the social norms are very similar. So, you know, bouncing from country to country that way is, is, is easy. And there's tons of people doing it. There's tons of Americans or Westerners or Western Europeans that are doing that same journey. So even though I'm solo, there's a lot of people that have instant connections with because they're backpacking Europe too. Yeah. You know, Southeast Asia is another great place for that too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so that being my first solo travel made it a lot easier because I could just, you know, it's like, Oh, Hey, like you're doing what I'm doing. It's slightly different. Let's talk about how we're doing it. And then, you know, either, and then go out or whatever. So, so that, that was, you know, that, you know, definitely forced me on a shell a little bit more, forcing me to meet more girls and more people and just be more sociable and, and kind of built upon the foundation that I had as, as, a, as, a, as a poker player um, with pattern recognition and just being comfortable in different varied situations, different countries and, and, all that, and different groups of people and all that stuff. So you're doing that for a while. What, what kind of brought you back? What, what did you do after all the um, travel? So... So I did, so I did, so the travel was mixed. So like I did the backpacking Europe and I moved back to London and I got back into poker and um, probably just kind of did that rinse and repeat till I was till my mid twenties. So, um, you know, I have a million crazy, insane poker stories. And if we want to trade war stories, I'm, you know, we can, we can do that later, but, but I'll just, it just kind of, that all kind of just blends together in my brain. Cause it's all just, you know, crazy story. It's a crazy event. And then two months of just kind of rest and relaxation and, you know, Wales and then, you know, crazy Europe travel. It just kind of, you know, and just, and just kind of that just slowly building on itself, building on itself. And I come back to the States for a bit and it, it was really just kind of three months here, two months there, traveling for a few months and just kind of quick home bases. And kind of a year into that, I was just, you know, going through my expenses. Like, why do I, why am I still paying for this crazy huge storage with all my furniture in Santa Cruz? And that was, that was a really cathartic moment for me when I, when I flew back to Santa Cruz, called on my buddies that, live, that still live in, that, in the home, my hometown, and just unlocked this storage unit. Like, take whatever you want; it's yours. And this was like furniture that I had I either had hand picked out or hand built for this home that I thought I was gonna like, live in for a long time in Vegas. Um, and you know, a lot of it I bought with my ex. And like, it was like you know, I, it was kind of like this this ready to deploy house that I had like spent a ton of time and money in curating. And I just, I just kind of let it all go all at once, which was, which was, which felt amazing. And I've kind of been in that minimalistic lifestyle ever since. Like I, I haven't bought a piece of furniture since then, unless it was for an Airbnb since, since I was 22 when I, when I got rid of the storage unit, it's been eight years now. Yeah. And it's pretty crazy to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm in the same boat <laughs> <laughs> I, for, for people who, haven't bought a piece of furniture for themselves. We certainly own a lot of furniture. <laughs> yeah. <I know. laughs> like I just said the other day, like, hey, you have any furniture in San Diego? Oh, I, I just picked up another unit. <laughs> I, need, I, need <laughs> I will in three <laughs> months, someone, but not right someone now. Someone looking at my balance sheet would be like, you don't know what's at all. What are you talking about? <laughs> so I guess it was um, kind of around that time when, when we met you in LA. I'm guessing you moved back from Europe ended up in Santa Cruz and then was looking for <laughs> Craigslist tennis partners. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I met you through our mutual friend, Jesse, who I mean, Jesse, I guess on, on the call. Um, yeah, we met on Craigslist. I was looking for a tennis partner and hit it off and just kind of played a little poker here and there and, you know, traveled some together and, you know, did some crazy weird things together. And I did a couple other random startups before Sensei and, you know, I was just kind of looking to transition out of the poker life. You know, poker for me, I kind of hit my ceiling there. You know, like it, it was a combination. It was a combination of three things that why I got out of poker. One was um, the my edge was shrinking. I wasn't getting that much better, and a lot other people were getting pretty good. So my expected um, hourly rate was just going down, and you know, it was just I wasn't making as much as I used to, and it's. Just, it's just the fields were getting bigger, so it's higher variant, and just all across the board, my the amount of money that I could potentially make as a career poker player was going down over time. So like this, this long term, this doesn't make any sense. Um, and in hindsight, I mean, it's a little, it was it was kind of tough to admit this, but in hindsight, I should have left poker long before I did. 
um, you know, in, in a, if I had been operating with perfect information and had kind of my emotion cloud me, um, I would have left poker probably, I want to say, when I was 22 and not when I was 25. Um, because the 22 to 25, it really, it was really a grind. You know, it was, I was making decent money. I was traveling a ton, but I was super stressed out. And even though I was traveling a ton and having an amazing time for a lot of it, a lot of it was really stressful, you know, long sessions at the poker table, just about, you know, you know, finances. And, I, and it just, it just wasn't as fun as probably from the outside it looked. I, I always say poker is a really, really hard way to earn an easy living. And that, that became more true as, as time went on. Um, so, so one is just, you know, my, my overall edge was shrinking, um, two, the poker economy itself was kind of drying up. Online poker was going away. That was after Black Friday. And there was, there was a lot of really big issues. You couldn't just really have to get money off and on of poker. There was a lot of kind of scamming going on. And then, you know, what, what's interesting is at around this time, there were these two big kind of poker conglomerates. There were these two basically warring poker factions that had a like infinite money and they were buying up poker players. I know it sounds weird, but if you're, if you're in the poker economy, you know what, there's something called a stable. And it's basically, if a player is backed, like let's say, let's say Robbie, I'm going to put you in a tournament. Okay. So let's say the tournament is a hundred dollar buy-in. I'm going to, Sasha, I'm going to pay the hundred dollar buy-in. In poker lingo, Robbie, you're now my, my horse. Cause you're, I have a horse in the race and you're my horse. And I get a percentage of your winnings because I, I back you in it. Okay. If I'm backing a lot of people, I now have a stable because I have multiple horses in my stable. Does that make sense? Yep. There was these two groups of guys that were creating these massive stables, and it got to the point where I'd go to a tournament, like a ten thousand, like a big tournament, like a ten thousand dollar buying tournament, and eighty percent of the field would be in one of the one of these two stables. <laughs> and it, and it, it gets to the point where I sit down at a, I sit down at a, at a table, and if eighty percent of the players are on one of these two stables normal game theory, game dynamics go out the window because if, if I'm, if I'm a horse, if me and another guy are in the same stable, oftentimes they would split winnings. So if Robbie, you and I are both horses in the same stable and we've entered the same tournament, we would pool our earnings together. So if you went out, if you got first and I got last, you and I would chop up first place. You can imagine how that changes the dynamics in hands when instead of everyone is free for all for themselves, you have three people that are, basically playing together. Right. And another three people that are playing on their side and I'm kind of caught in the middle. And so I saw that going on. I was like, well, there's this like consolidation, which happens in any industry when, when, ed, when arbitration, when edges go down, um, oftentimes the only way to grow is to consolidate and to, to acquire smaller companies. And in poker, it was very much the same way. There's a few guys at the top that have made a lot of money winning large tournaments or whatever, and they saw their edges drying up and they decided just to, okay, well, I'm just going to deploy capital by um, buying up other horses and just got to the point where it was just the mar- the field was saturated with these two stables wow, and, it, and, it, and it became an untenable situation. Right. Yeah. Well, that's so a like kind of bad three, situation yeah, for you right? as a horse. Yeah. yeah, yeah you know, I did. I, yeah. Well, I, I wasn't a horse then. I didn't, I didn't want to, but I didn't want to, I mean, I was sometimes, I wasn't sometimes, but I didn't want to be in, I mean, that whole poker economy was just kind of imploding. Yeah. And so I just, you know, I just wasn't nearly as much money in there as it, as it used to be. So it was kind of everything. And I've been kind of in the background and wanting to leave for a while. And I was just, I think I was just scared to do it because, um, you know, that was kind of my identity. You know, I, I, I dropped out of college. I didn't, my resume, I don't have a, I didn't have a resume. I, I had zero resume, zero transferable skills, really. You know, to drop out of poker is, is that's a scary thing because now I'm like, okay, what do I do now? You know, like what what is my identity? What do I what do I say I do when I meet someone? Sure. Yeah, hey, a retired poker player <laughs> at the yeah. age of twenty four. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, honey, mom, I met this great guy. Oh, honey, what did you do? Well, he used to be a gambler, but now he doesn't do anything. He retired he, young, retired rich. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, except I wasn't rich. So. That was a big that was a big flaw in the plan. <laughs> <laughs> so, when um, did you did you, see, did you see any more shifts kind of socially around this at at this point? I think I one thing that um, actually I think I have to thank you and Jesse for Rob is I don't know if I ever thank you for this is that you got because of the um, very um, 
no-holds-bar feedback. As you said, I showed kind of an alien long hair. Like, I was much more of a I'm my own person, I don't care type guy. And I still got laid plenty, but it was, it was very much I was handicapping myself in ways that I really didn't need to. I kind of learned um, how, to, how to weight and value other people's perceptions and, and try to kind of articulate, but basically, I'll, I'll, let, me, let me give a concrete example of fashion. Okay. When I met you guys about 25, I probably had the worst fashion for a guy <laughs> that got laid as much as I did in the history of the world. Like, it was disgusting. And in my head, I was like, you know what? I, I have no issues with girls. I'm totally fine. You know, this is what's comfortable. What, what do I care? And I, it didn't, I didn't realize how many missed opportunities I was, I was leaving on the table by handicapping myself when it really wasn't that much of an effort to start dressing, quote, unquote, more normally or more socially acceptably or more fashionably. Right? Right. That's one example. Right. Um, and so I think that is where some things clicked and that, of course, that, you know, that those uh, starting to see that and understand that, apply that to different, different parts of my life definitely um, had a big impact. And, you know, poker is a weird bubble, you know, like if you're and it, it's, it's, it's this bizarre little economy and, you know, like I had a lot of social stature in the, in the poker economy because of, you know, and especially in Europe, well, the States don't really knew me, but in Europe I was decently well known and, um, you know, I was, um, you know, so I, so I, I think I was kind of, kind of fooled myself by thinking I was better than I was because of that. Right. So, you know, you kind of have that positive feedback loop from this little bubble economy, and then you don't really, you don't really, you don't know how you look to the, the rest. Awesome. You don't really get, you know, it's hard for you to get that outside perspective. And then when I came back to the states and I'm starting with you guys some more, and you know, and you know, I think that was a big turning point as well. Right. Well, yeah, it was funny because. When, uh, like I said earlier on the call, when I first met you, I, I was like, you did not, and I, and I had a pretty good radar for this back then. You did not show up on, on my list as someone who would do well with girls. But then when yeah. I watched you kind of operate in London, I was like, holy shit, where did this guy come from? <laughs> Imagine if he got a haircut, right? And then he did. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, so that was, and, and that is super important. And I think that's, I think that's what handicaps the average guy the most is two things is not having feedback on just really that's easy cute. things that they can do to improve and their fashion sucks. Cause what guy gives a fuck about fashion? Who's not gay? You know, it's, you don't give a fuck until yeah. you realize that you need to give a fuck because girls give a fuck. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And, 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 what I'll say to any guy that's listening that, um, you know, is in that boat is, is I totally can understand um, why you haven't started working on it yet. It can be a little daunting. I remember when I first started thinking about trying to, like, be a little fashionable, like, and it was just, people would say, like, oh, just, just Google, like, what models are wearing lately. Like, uh, you know, just that, that wasn't really, you know, it, it, was, it seems like a harder task to do than it really is, but... Um, I mean, there's fashion guys and everything, and, and I see, but um, it's it's doing the basics well is all you need. Like, I don't I don't have super flashy fashion, but I can go anywhere and do anything and not stick out like a sore thumb, right, Rob? You'd agree with that, I'm sure. Yeah, and you're, you're similar to mine. Like, I could certainly. Yeah. Basic, there's tons of room for me to improve if I wanted to, but my marginal benefit from doing that is so slim at this point. It's, you know, I'd rather focus my time elsewhere because, you know, I could dress like a dandy if I wanted to and like get all into, <laughs> get all into yeah. it. But well, for me, because I'm in, I'm, I still have, I'm still in the business world more than I, more than you probably just day to day. And so like, I need to be in meetings and presenting and talking to people and whatever. And so like, yeah. I want to have like a basic fashion where I can go to a, you know, go from the office out or, you know, just my wardrobe can be simple enough where I can travel. And you know, what's, you know, what's great is, you know, my life basically fits in a carry-on. Yeah. But I can do, I can go to the box in New York or I can go to a board meeting or whatever and, and it's all I'm living out of that carry-on. Exactly. And uh, you don't need that many pieces to do that. I mean, you need no, you a pair of jeans, a pair of pants that can double as like a going out pants or, or like, um, you know, dress pants, a, a one like yeah. nice coat or blazer that you could wear at something a little bit more formal, some t-shirts, a button down so, pair I'm of shorts. I'm so jealous of your black jacket. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everyone's got one that's super jacket. similar. 
Tyler's is might maybe know, even better. Because his has a hood. His has a hood, and it can kind of... No, I don't like that. I don't like the hood. No, yeah. I mean, mine's a little bit more sleek, that's for sure. Yeah, you're... The the Theory Black Bomber is what we're talking about with the the leather sleeves. I have a Wendy Theory New York, and like... (laughs) I was like, I don't care if I look exactly like Robert's one, and they just have it. (laughs) But yeah, and and that's... um, it, It just feels so good to be able to... I don't know there's something about having all of my stuff that can fit in a carry-on and I can just get up and fucking go. There's something about yep. that that oh, just feels feel like so world. good, you know? Yep. <laughs> Not tied yep. down to anything, you know, if you need to leave, you can just go. Absolutely agree. And you thought about getting a cat, um, which would have been interesting. I wanted to talk to you about that. Um, <laughs> cause I, uh, yep, I did. I'm a nomad who, you know, who's hacked the having a pet thing with a, with the service dog. And I'm sure you could have had the service cat. <laughs> Absolutely. That was the plan. Yeah. What happened um, with that? Well, so it was a combination of things. So just, I mean, quick backstory for, for anyone that cares. Um, I was traveling in Morocco with this girl I was seeing and um, we were in Marrakesh at the time and we're walking home from dinner, a little tipsy. And I see this tiny, tiny little like two or three week old kitten by itself, like on the side of the road. And, you know, there's certain countries, Morocco included that do not treat animals like pets. They treat animals like tools. It's, it's, it's very, tough to sell the first time you kind of experience that. Robbie, I'm sure you've seen that maybe in Ukraine. I don't I haven't so much time in Ukraine, so I don't know. But like there's certain countries where animals are for the most part not treated like like pets. Mm-hmm. Like they're tools. Yeah. And like there. you know, like if you yeah. So anyway, so so I was like, oh my God, I gotta take this kitten home and and so I so we're we're staying in um this little Riyadh, we're staying in um the Fatina, which is like the old the old town, which is like these little narrow alleyways and stuff. And we take the little kitten and we take it in and you know, I start feeding it, and um, I basically fostered this kitten for a week um, in Marrakesh, and we bond, and it's, it's, you know, this gorgeous, cute little kitten, and it's, like, sleeping in my arm every night, and, like, rides on my shoulder during the day, and, like, I would ride around on a moped, it would just kind of, like, just, you know, just perch on my shoulder, just kind of, like, chilling, hanging out, and I had this, like, vision of, like, the most dopest Instagram ever of, like, <laughs> traveling the world with this, like, cute kitten from, street kitten from Marrakesh on my shoulder. Right. Right. And I was, I was serious about bringing it back, but the issue was it was so young, it wasn't old enough to get a shot and I couldn't get it to customs without, without it getting a shot. Oh, okay. And so luckily the, the Riyadh owner, which is like a little hotel um, in America that we're staying at, they actually fostered a bunch of animals. They had a bunch of turtles and like a goat and like a bunch of dogs and cats. And they're like, all right, we'll take it. And um, the owner of the Riyadh fell in love with the cat and, you know, event it just it just didn't work out. I mean, part of part of the reason I I didn't push too hard is I thought that you know you need to well everything I read is that for a cat to like basically be a uh, ride on your shoulder cat it needs to kind of imprint that early in life, and you know six months in or twelve months in they've kind of already you know they've kind of imprinted and you know they weren't imprinting on me they were imprinting on the hotel owner so it's just it's just I think if I couldn't got, could have gotten the kitty out the kitten out then I would have definitely taken it. And I would now be a nomad with a, with a cat. Yeah, but it just, just didn't work out. And <laughs> part of me is definitely glad because that sounds like a pain in the ass. But at the time, I was like head over heels in love with this cat. And like, it doesn't matter how many times Jesse called me and called me a fucking idiot. Like, I was taking that cat home. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my dad. My dad told me I was an idiot for getting Wiley, and I probably was. But you know, if you can't overcome those <laughs> but you emotions, can't imagine life without him. Yeah, exactly. And would I change yeah, it? I hell mean, no. And you're right. lucky. You have a good. Or network where you have family and friends, and your sister takes them all the time. And, yeah, know. I could leave them all the time. If, but yeah, if it wasn't yeah. for that. So, for anyone who's considering being a nomad, I would recommend against an animal. Yeah, <laughs> but, I definitely. Like, that, that's an expert nomad move. Yeah. Do not start out by having an animal <laughs> at all. <laughs> Do not recommend. Um, so, what do you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about girls? Do you want to talk about business? Do you want to talk about, like, minimalism nomad like what's well it's great we've we've touched on a bunch of stuff um let me open up the the line so i've got everyone on mute let me unmute everyone here um so any questions for sasha and if nothing comes up i'll take the conversation different directions but anything um 
I'll go ahead and ask away, guys. Yeah, what's up? I have a question. Robbie mentioned, like, briefly in the beginning of the call, and I've heard it, like, mentioned, like, a million times in the group, and I had the same thought that Robbie, like, worded, which was, you know, girls seem to think that, like, Sasha is, like, the hottest thing to ever happen to the world. But guys are kind of like, well, like, yeah, he's, like, good-looking, but, you know, they don't really see it. So I was wondering, like, what, like, if there are, you get, like, a little more specific, like, are we talking, like, just, like, like a physical thing that, like, guys don't see but girls do, or is it just, like, how, you, you know, you interact or, or what a little more specific on that would be cool. So I, I think that I, I take advantage of, of um, my physical attributes. Like basically I think I'm really good at taking advantage of my height. So I'm pretty tall. I'm like six, rough around six, three. And um, you know, when I'm, when I'm in a bar or whatever, like I'm really good at kind of catching eye contact and like subtle body language to kind of, and to take advantage of that. Um, so I think that's definitely puts me a leg up on someone that maybe has a similar hotness reading that I do. Um, yeah. Sasha, uh, Ron, do you have any other take on that? Yeah. You're really good at making eye contact and giving that like, I'm going to bang you smirk. Right. Or, or like, it's not even that it's, it's just more like the, like, I see you looking. It's telepathic. Yeah. <laughs> it just says everything that you wanted to say. Right. It's like the, I know you're into me and I'm into you. And like, I'm going to kind of look at you. And then like, you're really good at flirting from afar and catching those, those things. And yeah, that's a huge advantage to be tall because you're above everyone. And, you know, so you're, but you still have to take advantage of that. There's a million guys who are tall that, that, can't do anything right they're poor body language they don't make eye contact they're not comfortable with that and eye contact is one of the most underrated things because no one no one wants to talk about it because no one really understands it very well um and were you always comfortable with eye contact how did you how did you kind of see or do you do you remember how you kind of went through that progression that made you really you know, good i think I, and, you know, this is kind of a catch-all, but I think poker really, I mean, because the thing is, like, in a poker hand, you, you might have a stare-down where someone, you bluff, you know, and inside your heart's pounding, but outside you have to look completely normal. And you might have to, you know, or you might be staring at someone trying to get some sort of nervous tick or information from them at the table. So you, and just because of that, life, you know, just because of that, all over, 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 day after day after day, you become really comfortable looking at someone in the face, looking at their eyes, reading that body language and understanding like how they feel towards you. Um, that's something that I feel very comfortable uh, doing. Right. And it also takes, it takes a lot of confidence to be able to kind of give that girl the look. I remember from in my getting comfortable with that, it was very tough for me to hold eye contact and then I could hold it, but I'd have to have like a stone face. And to just be able to look a girl in the eye and give her that little smirk takes a lot. Did you ever have that similar experience or did it come more easily? I think, I think it came more easily. I mean, I think, I mean, I remember, I definitely remember as a little kid, I contact, I mean, I, I think everyone had that feeling as a kid at some point where like, I, oh my God, I, I contact with that girl and then you get the butterflies and you're like, you know, like you get all nervous and then you look away or you blush or whatever. Like I remember the kid feeling that way for sure. Um, but not, um, not otherwise. Okay. TJ, that was a good question. Um, did, did that answer it? Do you have anything else? Yeah, no, I think that was it. Definitely need to work on my eye contact after hearing that. <laughs> and the other thing is too, I Thank mean, you. with eye contact, it just, it sets the interaction onto the, the sexual vibe that you want from the beginning. You know, there's no question that when you're, you strike up a conversation with that girl, whether you go to her or she comes to you, there's no question like, are you going to fall in the friend zone? <laughs> it's like, everything's already been said through the eyes, right, Sasha? Yeah, I don't get friend zone that often. Yeah. Did you ever? I'm guessing not really. No, I mean, not really. I mean, I think, I mean, the thing is, is, um, uh, you know, I grew up around, um, you know, gay lesbian people much more than the average person. And so, um, uh, I don't know what the term I'm going long, long story short, no, but I've always had, like, friends of both sexes, but I, it's always been, like, a mixed bag of, like, sexuality and stuff. So I've had friends that, you know, I ended up hooking up with later, but it wasn't, like, 
I was pursuing them and they put me in the first zone. If that makes sense. Got it. You know, it was, it was just kind of a mixed bag of that. Okay. Who else has questions? Oh, must not have had a very interesting life then. One of those questions. <laughs> this throws everyone off. No one asks. I'm a, I'm a little. I'm a little insulted. <laughs> Imagine how I feel because yeah. I get this every single call. <laughs> but if you just if you just say nothing, someone eventually asks. Go for it. So, Sasha, yeah, you have like quite a unique upbringing, right? So, uh, you talked about the disadvantages. Anything you found? Uh, uh, really advantageous about it, like something that really you look back on it and you saw how yeah, I mean, it actually helped you with women. You know, I had two sisters and two moms, and being around that that much estrogen, um, I think definitely helped me just kind of understand women better at an earlier age and understand that. I mean, it's something Robbie talks a lot about. You know, look at what a woman does, not what she says. And I still make that mistake and, and, you know, sometimes listen too much to what a woman says or what she does, but in general, that's a really mistake rule. And I think I just subconsciously picked up a lot of stuff like that just from having to live and, 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 and operate around women much, much more than kind of the average person. Um, additionally, um, not having, you know, no TV, no video games, that kind of stuff kind of forced me um, to, to do other things. Um, and that was sports and kind of other social stuff and just kind of, I think, helped me develop some of that, some of those other skill sets that some people just kind of don't because they kind of get stuck. I never, you know, I never stuck into a video game for a year, you know, or, or watch TV every day after school or anything like that. I had those hours of other stuff, whether it was creative stuff or social stuff. So that definitely helped as well. It, it definitely, um, sort of, it, you know, in looking back on it, very, very glad I had that, that childhood. It probably wouldn't trade for anything, but it was brutal, like, during it. Like, imagine, like, you go to school, and every single person is talking about the latest, I don't know, South Park episode or whatever, and you have to sit there because you weren't allowed to see it. And there wasn't YouTube and all the smartphone. I'm just like, uh, yeah, that was funny. Like, you know, like, every single day or all of school. Like, that's pretty brutal. So what did you do after school? Just played water polo? Okay. I mean, in high school, yeah, I mean, you know, we, water polo was taken very seriously at, at, at my school, and so it was a year-long kind of thing, so that was kind of, and then I played, actually played, <laughs> I played, um, I played the flute, so I played jazz and classical flute at a pretty high level, like, I was kind of on track for, you know, Juilliard at one point, wow. um, and so those two things combined, like, very much ate up a ton of my time, um, you know, plus normal, like, some social stuff, but. Um, I want to hear you play the jazz jazz flute. <laughs> I mean, I'm in San Diego, so I mean, yeah, you know, so I might have to break Rod, it out. Rod Burgundy, yeah, it's <laughs> amazing. Um, did you ever notice, like, because you there was certainly that lack of like a masculine kind of force in your life growing up. Do you think you picked up all of your because you're a masculine dude? Like, you don't really have any sort of like gay or feminine yeah. feminine like mannerisms or anything like that um, not gay but feminine but where yeah. do you think you think that you got that from sports and just being around other masculine athletes yeah I mean neither of my parents my dad and my moms were, were super feminine <laughs> um, that, that, that definitely helped um and I don't probably have one thing to attribute to you. I think I'm, I'm very lucky. I played sports and was around that. You know, water polo is a very physical sport. Um, uh, I think, you know, moving to Europe and kind of getting thrown into that crazy um, masculine gambling world at a young age definitely helped beat any remaining effeminate things out of me if I had any. Yeah. And I, don't really, I don't remember that ever being an issue. But, um, you know, you would think in a vacuum if, if you're talking about some guy that grew up with two lesbian moms and two sisters, you know, you'd, you'd probably take the odds. Probably the odds are in favor of him being a little more effeminate and, uh, than the average. Right? right. But in my case, that, that wasn't the case for me, at least. Okay. Well, it's about that time. Let's see if anyone has any last questions. So any last questions for Sasha? Sure, one more. Mm -hmm. So Sasha, what do you find um, like you're, you do really well at, or it's like things are really obvious that most people um, 
you're surprised that uh, they just don't get. Yeah. Um, I with that's a good question. Uh, Robbie talked about this a bit. Like with, with women, I think it's um, um, subtle escalation and touching, and kind of my game is really um, a make no mistakes. That, that's really kind of the core of my game is just don't fuck up. Um, and that, that works really well for me. Um, and I think that it's a combination of pattern recognition and um, just uh, the, the nonverbal cues and the really subtle escalation via touching is, I mean, with girls at least, is, is something that I think I do very, very well. And um, I, I see a lot of people struggle to, to, to pick that up and make it feel natural. Yeah, and how did you get comfortable doing that? How do you do it so naturally? Oh, man. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of it was natural, and again, poker, but um, it's, yeah, you know, it, 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 when I think about it, it really, really was natural. I don't remember ever kind of learning it from anyone or anything. Like, like my kind of go-to is a sexual touching escalation in a public setting where no one's really looking. So you kind of have that, that element of danger, that element of fun, that element of, you know, it's, it's us two and, you know, like, you know, it just, I don't know, like that, that write-up that I did a while ago where, I'm sorry, part three took me a year to post. Um, it was worth I the wait. multiple examples of that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great post. Probably the best post when it comes to like physical escalation. Finale. <laughs> Well, the the thing is that really fucks up a lot of guys when they when they try to learn touch is once you start thinking about it, then it puts you in your head and <laughs> it kind of has the opposite impact. Um, and I don't know. I wish there was a way to kind of help someone through that, but it's just kind of one of those things that you have to do. It's like in the beginning, you might have this unconscious competence where you might be doing it okay. But then once you start thinking about, ooh, I have to touch her more, escalate more, now all of a sudden you're you're thinking about it, and that fucks you up. And you're going to guess wrong. You're yeah. either going to touch too much or not enough, and you're going to blow yourself out, and you just, you just have to be okay with that. Like, you need to, like, you basically just need to decide, you know what, the next year, fuck it. I'm, I'm just going to just, I'm just going to, this is going to be, you know, it's kind of like learning a language, you know? Like, it's not, you know, you don't go to, you don't go fly to Mexico tomorrow. You know, like, you know, you probably start to get on Duolingo or whatever and, you know, build up your skills and, and uh, you, know, you have to make a focus and not worry about the results too much, by the way. You're going you're gonna to blow yourself out with girls, for sure. Yeah, that's good advice. And another thing, just to touch on, Sasha, what you do really well in terms of the not making mistakes thing is you do a good job of capitalizing on your strengths. You know, you do have that advantage of being tall, but, you know, you, you cement that with, eye contact stuff and then when you when you do end up in a conversation um you're present you know you listen you're you're you, you ask good questions and i think that's the biggest thing that a lot of guys screw up and where you really don't is i don't really ever see you kind of like going in your head or doing this or doing that you know you're always just kind of right there um and have you maybe maybe that's another advantage of not watching tv or having that kind of like add life um, or being able to focus really hard with poker or having that feminine um, influence in your life growing up, it's maybe that's helped you to be more present as well. What do you think? Yeah, I think, I think, it's, I think um, when, I'm, when I'm in the zone, I think um, I really, I'm, I'm a really, really good listener, and I, I think I definitely use that to my advantage. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it's a combination of all those things that, that, um, that helps. But, I, I mean, I definitely... I definitely find myself, you know, when I'm tired or not, you know, not really that excited about something, I definitely find myself zoning out, sure. you know, just either going on autopilot or just not caring. And that definitely comes across, you know, and, and so if you're, even if you're in a business setting and you're just trying to do social networking or anything, it's really, your energy is very apparent to everyone around you. And so that's something that I've tried to like catch myself or, you know, catch myself up on lately is, you know, okay, you know. I'm here. If I'm here, you, if you're here to do something, do it well. Basically, is what what that what that boils down to. Um, and that's something that I am working on currently. Is if I'm going to do something, if you're there, you know, like for example, I'll go out and I'll be tired and just kind of standing around and like go home or get amped up and be have fun there. Like don't just stand there. You know, and that, you know, um, you know, I definitely catch myself doing that. 
and, and you know, it's like, why am I here? Like, I'm just going to go home. Like, Robbie, like, we were out here for your weekend, and I think around, like, 11 or 12, I just went home because I was tired and just kind of, you know what, like, I, I was zoned out and not contributing any fun or anything. And I'm just, you know what, that's it. I'm just, just going to go home and clear losses at that point. Right. Yeah, and that's, and once you're feeling that, that's the best thing to do, you know, to put yourself in a timeout. Um, well, let's see, any last questions? Sasha, you've got a lot Just of a quick one. good questions. Are you going to uh, so. do any videos? Like, do a, create a video for us? A video? Yeah. Like, you know, it'd be great to see you, like, you know, where, how do I put it? It sounds almost magical the way everyone describes you, right? And, like, a lot of us, <laughs> I haven't met you, so I have no idea how you look in action. Wait, where do you, right? where do you live? Florida. Florida? Where in Florida? Yeah. Orlando. I'm not gonna be there already. That's it. Yeah, I mean, Robbie, we can do like a fireside chat or something. Yeah. Yeah, we can do something. We can figure something out. Yeah, we can do like demo demonstration or fireside. I mean, maybe I'll just come in when you on your next um your next um trip or your next um workshop. Perfect. Yeah. Well. If you guys want to, like, if you want to see the the magical Sasha, yeah, yeah, see the magical. There we go. Keep on, yeah, see the magical Sasha. You got to pay to play, guys. Exactly. <laughs> 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 um, so I guess my my final word would be: throw away everything. Don't have things. You will not believe how good it feels. To have a minimalist lifestyle, live out of a carry-on, go travel, make mistakes, and life is short. Just get the fuck out of the house. Like, I, I can't stress that enough. And don't move to Vegas for more than two months. And yeah, exactly. Don't move to <laughs> Vegas for more than a month or two. Because you're really sick in the head. Um, but I really think that the minimalist lifestyle and, and just kind of having that freedom to travel and is, is what everyone should strive for, especially in this day and age when it's so much more attainable. And you can't do person. that forever, guys. I mean, you kind of can, but, you know, at some point, I yeah. I mean, I, I'm taking it to the next level. Like, my, my, I've told, I got told dealers probably, like, I want to get a self-driving house. You know, like, Tesla's working on a self-driving car. I'm going to take that technology once it's, like, fully, like, level seven, level seven, like, Things can just drive on their own without needing like a driver at all, and I'm just gonna slap that on the house, put the wheels on it, and boom, I got my like house that was just driving around the world. Oh well, I've I've many times considered buying an RV. The problem is the RV doesn't fly across the ocean, and uh, gotta have somewhere to park it. But <laughs> it's self-driving. You get out, it goes and parks itself. There you go. Well, when they come out, we'll be the first I'm ones. Pick you up, and then you can complete while it's driving. Amazing. Right? Yeah. So work while it's driving. So you so you don't waste the travel hours and you still have your 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 own home and you know, like your own stuff. And it's like the best of both worlds. It really is. And you know, if you wanna you, know, you just do America for a bit and you can always like park and hop on a flight for a quick flight, but like you know, like chartering um a car or, or an R V from um across the pond like to the UK like to Europe is not that expensive. Mm-hmm. Really not. Oh, anyways. <laughs> well, it's a good, uh, yeah. Maybe, who knows? It, oh, we'll see. Well, let's hope so. <laughs> I'm in for that too. Well, awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for being on. Uh, awesome interview. Yeah. You got you got way more questions than most people than most people get. So <laughs> <laughs> usually it's crickets for like all of ten minutes. But oh, thanks good. for coming on. All right, well, if you have any follow questions, I'm in a group. You don't have to tag me in anything. Um, and uh, yeah, hopefully I can meet you guys at Robbie's next. Uh, workshop or whatever you get to do. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Sasha. Talk to you all soon. Thanks. Take care, guys. Bye. Thanks, Thanks for listening. If you want more, go to innerconfidence.com and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for the latest episodes.